If you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. You may be seated. Lent is a time for Christians to remember the life of Jesus, specifically the events leading up to his crucifixion. Remembering the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when he sweat blood and resigned himself to the Father's will, a will that would take him to be beaten, spit on, mocked, flogged, made to carry his own cross, thorn, crown of thorns thrust into his head, and ultimately voluntarily giving up his life, dying before he was expected to, not being killed and not requiring his bones to be broken. He gave his life. It was not taken from him. We remember this because it demonstrates God's love for us, his courage and endurance through suffering, his determination to show his father's faithfulness, to complete what he had promised from the very beginning when we who were made in his image turned away and refused his life, grabbing hold of our own little lives. He did this to prove his love to weak, ungodly human beings who were his enemies. And he did this by providing a way, the way for them, for us to live in peace with him as his people and saved, being saved by his resurrected life through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He did what he did that we might trust him and drink his living water. That's the theme of our today's lessons. When we look in the book of Exodus, or when we think of the book of Exodus, most of us don't think about the wilderness of sin as the climax or something that we remember of it. I did a um, very unscientific survey. I asked people to, to write what they thought of when they thought of the book of Exodus, and it varied, right? They had um, the Ten Commandments, the Golden Calf, the deliverance through the sea. Guess what? Nobody wrote the wilderness of sin. Now, we may not put the wilderness of sin at the top of our list as to what Exodus is all about, but can I tell you that the wilderness of sin is not a secondary theme. It's actually contained within the primary theme of Exodus, which is this. God reveals himself to his people. God making himself known to his people. In fact, the climax of Exodus is not just them coming out of Egypt. It's actually being brought to the mountain and then subsequently God establishing his presence within their camp, right smack dab in the middle of their camp to lead the nation, to live with them, to lead them, to guide them, to protect them, and to provide for them for the sole purpose of all the nations around so that they could see the goodness and the graciousness of the God who was the one and true living God. 
It's the missionary heart of the book of Exodus, and I submit to you it's the missionary heart of the entire biblical narrative. The wilderness of sin is contained in three short chapters of the 40 of the book, but the significance isn't small, and it's this. The wilderness was a place where God attempts to forge a relationship, a trusting relationship with his people, with the Israelites, showing them his faithfulness, his power to provide and protect them. The Israelites, think about it, had just come out of 400 years of slavery to a very different kind of master. They'd been living for 400 years under the Pharaoh of Egypt. Now their knowledge, their experiential knowledge of the true and living God was the plagues. I mean, God came, he gave the plagues, the river of the Nile turned to blood, the firstborn were killed, and then of course they saw the seas come down on the uh, on the armies. Of course, they were saved out, but can you imagine that going through that and knowing that? And this God who brought the plagues and who turned the river into blood through Moses brings them into a wilderness where there seemingly is no provision. It's a place where they have no ability to provide for themselves. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you felt like you had not the necessary resources to live? It's harder for us, we live in America. But the closest I come is after 9-11, Michael and I lost our business. We had a, an audiovisual business that catered to corporate business meetings. And on 9-11, if you'll remember, after an hour of, after the, the towers had been attacked, all the planes were put down on the ground. It was kind of weird. It was weird. It was eerie. But Michael was in Reno. He was putting in a show in a, in a ballroom, and his client walked in and said, Michael, put it all back in the truck. Nobody's coming. And nobody came for over a year. And we fledged along and we fledged along till we couldn't fledge anymore. And we had to close our business. And worse yet, we had to declare bankruptcy. And I was a home, at stay-at-home mom with little kids. And Michael, the only thing he had ever done, which was good, was have a business. And we were, we were freaking out. I was freaking out. I think he was anxious as well. We were both anxious because it was a scary place and we felt vulnerable. We didn't know how we were going to put food on the table. We didn't know if we were going to be able to keep our home. So we were walking one day together on, we live near Edgewater Drive. We were walking on Edgewater Drive. And all of a sudden, I mean, this had been going on for a week and something snapped in me and I stopped and I turned to Michael and I said, Michael, we're Christians. And a newsflash, right? <laughs> we're Christians. We've been telling our children all this time, praying with them and telling them God is, their, is our provider. And here we are in the midst of something that's really horrendous. And we have not even turned. We have not even turned. And so we did. We did, we turned and we prayed 
And, you know, a week later, Michael got a job and, and we had food on the table and we kept our home. But that's not the point. That is not the point. The point is that we were able to turn in the right direction. We cried out to the one who was, is our source. And in turning, in turning, we found that God was faithful. Now, when we go through hardships with, with people, we go through hardships to, together, we see each other's character. And at that point, we saw God's character. Now, would he have provided with, if we hadn't turned? I, I imagine so. But we would have been robbed. We would have been robbed of the experience of seeing God hear us and respond to us. We get to know people, not so much in the smooth and happy times, but the rough times, the tough times, the suffering times. That's what the wilderness of sin was all about. Maybe not all, but it was about that. God was teaching the Israelites who he was to them. He set out to establish trust with his people. That's, where the wilderness, that's what the wilderness was all about, was trusting God. Literarily, the wilderness came, it's a connect between them coming out of Egypt and being rescued and going to the mountain to meet God. They needed to trust him before they got to the mountain, right? Our text is 17, 1 through 7, but we need to look at two chapters before because it helps establish what, the, what, our, um, what we can understand about 17, 1. They're all connected. So it's Exodus 15, 20 through to 27, and Exodus 16, 1 through 36. We're not going to read them. I'm just going to um, synop- do a synopsis, but I encourage you to uh, look at your, at your leisure so 15, 23 through 27 is right after the people come out of, they've been delivered. They've had their joyous Miriam's dance. And God brings them to, through Moses, brings them to Marah where the water's bitter. And Moses, the people cry out and God says, take a piece of wood and throw it into the water and it'll become, it'll become sweet. And they're able to drink. And then the Lord says this. He makes an ordinance. He says, he put, it says he puts the people to the test, saying, if you'll diligently listen to the Lord and you'll do what is right, I won't bring disease. I mean, think about it. They've just gone through seeing God bring disease. But this testing is, doesn't, it carries a meaning of teaching. God is not testing them on a pass-fail thing here. It's not a pass-fail exercise. The exercise is a teaching tool used to make them see that God would provide for them. And he goes on, he says, I'm the Lord who will heal you. He's teaching them that he, he is a good, he is good, and he's a good teacher. He doesn't just talk. He has a tactile experience with this wood getting thrown in. It's a miracle only God could do, and they knew it. The Israelites learned that God would provide water for them at Marah. So then 16, 1 through 36, that's the place where he brings the whole congregation into the wilderness of sin, and they, they look out and they cry out. They think they're going to die of hunger. And, and, and so God provides food for them, right? The manna from heaven. So six days, six days a week, he provides the manna. And on the sixth day, he actually gives them two days 
So God is not only teaching them here that, that he will provide for them food, but he's also teaching them how to live. They had just come out of 400 years of 24-7 working every day, every night to the bone. And God says, that's not who I am. That's not, I'm not that master. That was the old master. I'm a new master. And I say, you need to rest for a day. I think that's a good God. So the wilderness of sin, the Israelites are being prepared to meet their God by learning from him, learning who he is towards them, what kind of God he is. So we come to 17, Masa and Meribah. Masa and Meribah is completely different than those other two, right? It's completely different from those. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages. As the Lord commanded, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses, and they said, give us water to drink. Now here, the Lord is not testing them. He's not initiating a teaching for them. No. Here, the Israelites are testing God, and this is a pass-fail test. This isn't a teaching. They're, they're testing God, and he's going to pass or he's going to fail. In this text, the people aren't being disobedient. They're grumbling. Grumbling is the beginning of walking in the wrong direction. Merbah sets a trajectory for the, them that leads away from trusting God. And, and, and it wasn't until Numbers 13 and 14 that they actually refused and rejected God's will for them that they should enter into the promised land. But at this point, they're grumbling, and that begins that trajectory. So what does God do? What does God do? He's not upset with them, and he's not, he, he says, he teaches them. Same as the other, he teaches them. He tells Moses, strike the rock. And Moses strikes the rock and gush, and out gushes life-giving water for the Israelites. And they see. This foreshadows Jesus. He was struck. He was struck, and his death brought forth living water for our dead world. That's what Jesus was talking about at the well with the woman. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying it to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. At Masa and Meribah, the Israelites had already been shown that God would give them water, in the wilderness, the Israelites had been shown that God would give them food and that he was a good God wanting them to rest. But they didn't ask him when they got there. They addressed Moses as if God was nowhere around and they went on to mischaracterize who God was, is. And they acted as if God never had done anything for them. And actually, he was out to do them harm, right? He said, how have you brought us out here to kill us? Is God with us or not? Michael and I were walking down the road. We were scared, freaking out, anxiety-ridden, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying there's anything. I mean, we're human, right? We're human, and when things happen, we have human responses to them. 
But we stopped. Something made us stop and we turned. And we trusted that God was with us. We didn't know what it looked like. We didn't know what it was going to turn out to be. But that wasn't the point. The point was we turned and we said, okay, we don't know what's going to happen, but we know you. And we know that you're a good God. We know that you're trustworthy. We know that you love us. We know that we are yours. And so we turned, intentionally turned from worry to rest. Time after time in our lives, throughout all of our lives, we're asked to turn. Daily to turn. Minute by minute to turn. And as we do, and God shows up. Now that doesn't mean that we get what we want. It means that we trust that what he gives us is what we need. And he gets to define it, not us. And many times it isn't what we want. Time after time, as we walk with our Father, as we turn, our relationship gets sweeter with time, right? We, we grow to, to have more faith. We grow to have more trust. He's getting us ready for the mountain when we come face to face with God. Drinking that loving water quenches any thirst for getting merely what we want. Drinking that living water quenches the thirst for getting merely what we want. When we drink of the living water, we need nothing else, truly. Drinking that living water makes it possible for us to endure sufferings. Because we know sufferings produce endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope doesn't disappoint why because God's love is poured into our hearts through the living water that the Holy Spirit's been given to us the Israelites acted as if God needed to prove to them that he could provide for them they tested God the past fail kind well, God proved to us that he loves us. He proved and he taught us who he is when Jesus walked. The Della Rosa Road, the Via Della Rosa, he has nothing left for us to prove to us or to the world. He has nothing left to prove. We need but ask him for the living water. It's already freely given. He's made peace with us. We're the ones who keep lobbing grenades. During this holy season of Lent, as we spend reflective time, may we drink deeply of the living water of the Holy Spirit. May we listen intently to the voice of the Lord, our good and gracious God. May we remember the walk that Jesus took, the suffering that he endured,
to bring about our release from the prison of sin and death. May we remember the great love that he's poured out upon us. And may we, we, when we find ourselves in the wilderness of sin, may we stop, turn, bow our knee, and kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. Remembering that he's God. He's a God who is willing and able to save us with living water. May we trust the God who is trustworthy. Hear the words of Augustine. As far as it lies in the power of the physician, he has come to heal the sick. Whoever doesn't observe his orders destroys himself. Why would he be called the savior of the world? Because he saves the world. Amen.